You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians, and let me make a, let me make an advertisement just uh, real quickly. And if you're wondering why I have these aprons up here, they're out of Zimbabwe, and that's for Christy uh, Ware, wherever she may be. Sheila sent that to her. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, I mean chapter um, 2, chapter 2. But I've, I've brought a book with me, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to leave it up here because I want you to um, see what it means when your pastor researches or studies. Um, the, I just finished this book. It's called The Real Anthony Fauci, Big Gates, I mean Bill Gates, Big Pharma, The Global War on Democracy and Public Health. It's written by Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr. is the son of Robert Kennedy who was killed uh, about and during the same time as Martin Luther King Jr. was killed or thereabout in that time. He's also the nephew of John F. Kennedy who was assassinated uh, in the early 1960s. This book has been, uh, I'll be honest with you, I've told my kids when I die and you're looking at my library You'll find that when I read, I remember I was an avid reader. I used to win awards when I was in elementary school. I read 180 plus books one year in elementary school. I just love to read, and there's books everywhere. Uh, I, I've told my kids that, that one day when they're looking through their, my library, they'll see dog-eared pages. That means that it's important. If it's double dog-eared, that means it's a little more important. If it's triple dog-eared, then you really better stop and look at that because undoubtedly it really shook your dad or your grandpa up. If you see a page turned down like that, that means that it was something that I plan on going back and looking at again. Uh, the book is the most documented. I have an earned doctorate from Reformed Theological Seminary. It is the most documented book I've ever read. Uh, the bibliography at the end of a chapter is equal to any research paper or any research book. It's just everything is backed. Uh, I've often gone back and actually looked at a statement, finding it so unbelievable that I wanted to check the source, and then even would go beyond that, often looking at people in certain professions and saying, I read this, is this true? And only to have them verify it as well. But it, it is, um, it's over 400 pages, probably close to 450 pages. I'm going to leave it here because I think sometimes when I'm preaching, when I was talking about gain of function, talking about uh, the vaccine, vaccine not to be vaccinated or to be vaccinated, uh, talked about some of the things with the pharmaceutical industry, the agencies and our government. When I was talking about a lot of these things, a lot of people may say, well, you're just an old white man, you don't know a lot. And I, I don't pretend to know a lot, but I, I can tell you I spent probably two years at least on some of the things that we're dealing with in this series called The Perfect Storm. So we are today going to be talking about, again, part three. John Williams asked me last night, he said, Brother Jeff, he said, uh, what do I title the sermon? I said, John, I said, I guess title it the conflict between Christianity and critical theory and or something to that effect and title it part three. We're looking today at Philippians chapter Two, beginning at verse 1, Paul has written this letter to the church at Philippi. It's interesting, this church was probably pastored by Luke, the same one who wrote Acts, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. It was started at a time when he built a relationship. One of them was with the Philippian jailer. Paul loved this church. This church was dear to Paul's heart. In fact, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. It's a book in which Paul, unlike many other letters, such as Corinthians that we looked at, 1 Corinthians, Paul does not admonish. He, he's not getting on to the church. It, it, this is a church that 
This is like your kids. You know the kid that just doesn't give you a lot of trouble. You know, Paul's problem kid was Corinth. We can tell by the two letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth. You know, this, you know, there's some kids, girl, Emily, my daughter, I could just look at Emily and give her the look. And she would start, <laughs> she'd start crying. I could beat the worship leader within an inch of his life and he would be jumping around the back seat ready to go again. You know, there's just some, this is a, this is a great church. And yet Paul is talking about unity, and unity has a lot to do with what we believe. So in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. We'll go ahead and read verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you glory, Lord. And we ask you to bless this time. And we praise you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Years ago, I was, uh, Sheila and I were in San Antonio. I was actually a field medical officer and I was at Brook Army Medical Center uh, there in San Antonio, and I was going to school there. And while I was there, we uh, were living in a little apartment, and near us, not far from us, was this little couple. In fact, they lived next door to us. They were a Hispanic couple. Their names were Ernie and Martha, and they had a little girl named Ruby. And uh, they were Mexican, they had come over, they were, uh, and he was in the military, he was enlisted, I was an officer uh, going to school there, and we just built an unbelievable friendship. While Sheila and I were there, we began to ask the question, where do you go to church? Give us a good church. And so they gave us, a, people began to talk about this one particular church there in the San Antonio area, and uh they just said, this is a great church. You want to go there. It's exciting. A lot of good things happening. So Sheila and I went there, and we, we kind of fell in love with it. And it wasn't long. I mean, we hadn't been there long. We just looked one day. We said, hey, uh, Ernie, we want you and Martha and Ruby to go with us. And they were having a luncheon. They were having a banquet. And, and so we went to this banquet, and we carried this Hispanic family with us. We put Ruby in, day, uh, in the uh, nursery, and then Ernie and Martha, Sheila, and I were sitting there. We were sitting there, and we began to notice that people were not very friendly at all to this Hispanic couple. I mean, it was very, very noticeable. We were all excited. We were saying, these are our friends. This is Ernie. This is, uh, this is Martha, his wife. They're, they're enlisted here. They're at Brook Army Medical Center. We was all excited that they were our guests. But boy, it became evident that they were not welcome in this church. And the more I sat there, the madder I got. Sheila, I know Sheila was praying, oh, Lord, God, please don't let Jeff say anything. And finally, buddy, I exploded. I looked at him at a certain point. I stood up at that banquet and I said, I'm ashamed of this church and I'm ashamed of your behavior. I said, we brought this sweet family into this church and for whatever reason, and I think I know the reason, they have not been welcomed. You've not been gracious to them in any way. You've not even been cordial. And man, I let them have it. And let me tell you, in that moment, God got a hold of that banquet, got a, heart, got a hold of the hearts, the men and women in that room. They were repentant. They were broken. They wrapped their arms around that Hispanic couple, and that church changed its attitude about Hispanic people. You know, we've been looking and talking about worldview. What does it mean, worldview, this philosophy of life? 
a philosophy. The word means a, a love of wisdom. But what does it mean? A worldview, a philosophy of life. How we understand life. How we understand ourselves. How we understand our world. How we understand relationships. Our worldview is our attitude. It's our values. It, it's what forms our thoughts and our beliefs. And ultimately, what we believe is how we behave. You know, when Paul would write a letter, when he would write the, the, to the church at Ephesus, he would begin with belief, and then he would turn to behavior. When he wrote to Galatians, he would begin with belief, then he would go to behavior. Because how you and I believe is how we behave. We talked about a biblical worldview. And then we talked about critical theory. And uh, critical theory is a worldview. It's a, a way of looking at reality. And I told you this, children, young people today, when they go to a college campus, usually they are immediately involved in some kind of studies. If it has studies at the end of it, chances are it has to do with critical theory. And critical theory is a worldview. It's a way of looking at reality. And yet, Neil Shivney, who is a foremost expert on this issue of critical theory, made this statement about critical theory and even critical race theory. He said, to align Christianity with critical theory is the equivalent of trying to align Christianity with atheism. In other words, critical theory also deals with the subject of who are we? What is the fundamental problem of us as human beings? What is the solution to that, to that problem? What is our primary moral duty? What is our purpose in life? So critical theory is a worldview. And for young people that go into an academic environment, often they are at their biblical worldview, if they have one, is going to be under attack once they get on that college campus. What is a biblical worldview? It's where you and I basically simply govern our life on the authority of Scripture. This is my final authority. This is your final authority. I am not your final authority. This is. A biblical worldview, Christianity, starts with a creation. It starts in Genesis with a creator who has purpose and meaning to his creation. And then we're not long into his creation when we realize that man rebelled against his creator. And because of that, there was a fall. There was a corruption of creation. I re remember one time I was speaking at Baptist Hospital to uh, a board of directors there. And it was lunchtime. And I was to do a little short devotion. And they were sitting there with their laptops. Some of them were working on things while they were eating lunch. And they were going through when all of a sudden I began to talk about being in Zimbabwe, Africa. And I told them, I said, I was getting ready to go to a village. And I was asking this old pastor, Mephundus Jaina, how do I talk to people who've never had a Bible? They've never heard about Jesus. And he said, what are you speaking about? I said, the Word became flesh. And you remember, I've told you this many times, he took my jacket, he held my jacket, and he said, Nyama, which means flesh. And then he said, Mwadi, and he pounded that little African frame of his. And then he said, Mwadi, Akafeka Munyama. He said, the creator, God, Mwadi, put on the flesh of man. And I looked at one of those... Uh, one of those individuals seated there with his laptop and I said let me tell you this is how I put it to a Muslim I took that illustration and said to a Muslim I said who had a computer I said this is the equivalent of a virus coming into that laptop and the only way you can fix it is to go into the laptop to fix it and that's a biblical worldview we have a creator he set our creation in order meticulous order and man's rebellion and man's sin and lived in man's depravity. And man all of a sudden had a heart problem and he needed to be redeemed. And finally, the New Testament, we have the coming of Jesus Christ. Mwadi, the word became flesh. Mwadi, God, Akafeka, dressed up. Munyama and the flesh of man and invaded his creation. And God did what man could not do. 
He addresses man's problem, and man's problem is a problem of the heart. And when you and I repent of our sin and we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit, Paul called it in Ephesians, the down payment. God puts His Spirit in us and now it begins a work on the inside. It is changing the heart, how a man thinks. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we begin to work out what is in our heart, what God is working in, we're working out. That's a a biblical worldview. And we said this, that the churches often fail to live out a biblical worldview. I told you about a man by the name of Jamar Tisby, a man who wrote The Color of Compromise. I think he's now, he's a graduate of Notre Dame. He's working on his doctorate at Reformed. And he talks there about the complicity of the church, which means that in the case of civil rights, that often the church has been apathetic. It's been indifferent. It's not provided the leadership that the world needed. And we said anytime the church, anytime the church fails to live out a biblical worldview, you can get ready because our enemy and secular, the secular world will come up with a worldview. And one of those is critical theory. Now I want to give you two reasons why the follower of Jesus Christ cannot embrace critical theory as a worldview and why it conflicts. First of all, I want you to take a left from Philippians and I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. First of all, if you and I exchange our biblical worldview for critical theory, and, we begin, and listen, I'm not going to go back and review critical theory. You'll have to go back and you can listen to the messages of the last couple of weeks and you can go back and review for yourself. So I don't want to go back. But I will say this, that if you embrace critical theory and its teachings and it becomes your worldview, then the reality is, is number one, there's a danger of you and I being unequally yoked. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at verse 17. Let's read on. Therefore come out from them and be ye separate, says the Lord. You see, critical theory deals with symmetry. What is symmetry? It's when you and I join together in a group. And you remember, critical theory is all about uh, groups. It's all about identifying oppressed Oppressor, black, white, uh, uh, homosexual, heterosexual. Uh, it, it groups people and it, and it separates them out. And, and as a believer, all of a sudden you say, well, wait a minute. I may be black, but I'm in a group of people that I don't know that I agree with. Because you remember what Amos 3.3 3 says The Bible says that you and I cannot walk together except we be agreed. So symmetry is when you and I are joining those who may be outside the faith because we look to something that we can identify with uh, that makes us a group. Does that make sense? It's not merely outside the faith. But sometimes the groups that we may find ourselves joining up with may not only be outside the faith, but may be in conflict with the moral and ethical teachings of Scripture. Let me give you an example. When I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, and I live by a worldview. I live like by a biblical worldview. So if I'm in a, a place, and I meet somebody, Immediately, my first question in my mind is, are they a Christian? Are they a follower of Jesus Christ? Is this my brother or sister in Christ? Hey, listen, I'm not looking to their color. I'm not looking to their age. I'm not looking to any other ethnicity. 
I'm not looking to their sexual or gender preferences. I'm not looking at any of that. In that moment, I'm trying to determine if they are a Christian. Critical theory, critical race theory often groups people, critical theory based on oppressed and oppressor. And you know what we said last week, and you can go back and listen to that. The idea of oppression is a vacillating, ever-changing term. Robert Mugabe, the president of Zimbabwe, in 1981 led the country South Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia to its freedom and breaking away from the, from the, from the British Empire. But ultimately, 40, 50 years of ruling Zimbabwe, he became a billionaire and oppressed and stripped the people of everything of value, including the natural resources, and went around with his thug buddies, and they basically did this. They went into white-owned farms and butchered those people and took their farms. So a lot of times oppression is a vacillating, changing term that we can't simply grab our critical theory friends and say, well, this is a hard-clad definition because it's not. I'm not worried about homophobic. I'm worried about heterophobic. I'm not worried about the fragility of the white. According to D'Angelo and some of these others, I'm worried about the fragility of the left. You see, sometimes we get called up and the reality is and the danger is is that when you accept the critical theory, critical race theory, you begin to look at people based on their color, based on their race, based on their preference as to gender. And you begin to look at these affiliations and as a, and, and as a follower of Christ who has a biblical worldview, now all, of a, now all of a sudden you're looking at things that literally should not matter. First of all, you're trying to determine, do they know Christ? Is this my brother or sister in Christ? And if I look to any other affiliation other than Christ, then the danger is that I can be unequally yoked. In other words, when you unequally yoke, think about it. This is putting an ox. This is the only time preachers get to cuss, but I'm going to take it. This is when you put an ox and a jackass under the same yoke. This is what you tell your children when they're growing up. Do not date anybody that you wouldn't marry. Do not risk who you're going to put under that yoke. Jesus said, take my yoke. Learn from me. Ultimately, you and I are yoked to Jesus Christ. The reality is, if you're tied to somebody, if you're yoked to somebody and you've got a you're the temple of God's Holy Spirit, filled with God's Holy Spirit, and you're trying to walk in the plan and the purpose that God has for your life, and all of a sudden you put somebody else on that other side of that yoke who has a fleshly nature, does not know Christ, they're following the enemy, they're following the, the things of this world, then listen, you're going to have a lot of fighting under the same yoke because you're unequally yoked. Critical theory, critical race theory, the danger is, is that it groups us based on external factors, observable traits, and it puts us under the yoke in which we find ourselves unequally yoked. I wrote this down. The danger is, is that I'm identified as a white man, regardless of my beliefs. Or that you're identified as a black man, regardless of your beliefs. And, and it has nothing to do with color. It has nothing to do with grouping. You know, it's interesting, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but John Williams and, and, and Davion, Davion and John were having a very intense conversation, white man, black man. And John Williams was trying to convince Davion of this. He was trying to say, Davion, you just don't understand what it's like now to be white. And you just don't understand sometimes how I feel. And Davion was saying, well, you know, that's... And Davion was trying to counsel him. And I think Davion, from, the high, from a Christ heart, was trying to encourage his brother in Christ, though he's black. And finally, I looked at Davion, and, I, and what Davion was saying was this. He was saying, in the black community, we can tell when you love us or not. In the black community, your reputation is known. He looked at me and said, Brother Jeff could... He said, Brother Jeff could be with Daniel. He could walk anywhere in this community. He said, nobody would bother him. They know him. They understand why he's here. They know he loves us. 
And John said, but what if he's not with Daniel? They know it anyway. I looked at John and I said, John, who's been with me twice to Zimbabwe, I said, John, this is what the Africans used to tell me in Zimbabwe. As a missionary, you don't have to, you don't have to worry. We know what you're doing. We know your heart. We see your heart. We see the heart of your wife and your family. We know you love us. And it didn't matter where I went in Zimbabwe. It didn't matter Bulawayo, Gweru. It didn't matter Victoria Falls. There was a feeling as if when I was in the black African Shona Tonga in Debeli, there was a feeling as if I was loved. But I then looked at Davion and said, but Davion, you have to understand there is a growing reverse prejudice now of the black community toward the white. And what's really sad is it's being excused. Why? Because if we're not careful, then your pastor can be identified. Somebody can look at me and say, based, they could just simply say, based on my color, based on my age, he's a homophobic, old, white, patriarchal, Christian, racist, conservative, and probably Republican. Profiling comes in all colors. And I reminded my black brother in Christ who, uh, who felt profiled by Flowood police. And we had a, Reggie and I brought together law enforcement and Davion and we had a discussion that I thought was an excellent addressing the profiling sometimes that is given toward young black males. But I also would remind all of you that we all can be in danger of profiling based on somebody's color, their age, or whatever is external, outside. Isn't this what King said? His dream was what? That his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by what? The content of their character. You can't know the content of a man or woman's character and first, at, until you swallow your prejudice and build a relationship. Is that not true? And let me tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, Southern Baptists have stunk at it. We've done a horrible job. And if you don't believe it, you can look at all the churches that have been ripped out of this city and liquidated and reinvested into the suburbs. And that doesn't make me a pin up at the Baptist building. A biblical worldview is based on God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a biblical worldview. I want God's kingdom to come in my life, in my marriage, with my children, with my grandchildren. I want God's kingdom to come where I work, where I go to school, in my neighborhood, in my community. I want God's kingdom and thy will to come in my life and in everybody else's life. That's what I want. That's a biblical worldview. My objective, again, when I meet somebody, I'm not trying to determine their color. I'm not trying to determine their sexual preference. I'm not trying to determine their political ideology. I'm just trying to figure out, are they a brother or sister in Christ? They are either, listen, a brother or sister in Christ, or they're my mission field. That's it. If they are not my brother or sister in Christ, they are now my mission field. And I've got to introduce them to that silhouette right over there. Only he's real. Once the believer aligns with critical theory, critical race theory, once it begins to group people, it can find itself in direct disobedience to the authority of Scripture. Because it's unequally yoked. And listen to this. The alignment can go farther. I can find myself aligned with unethical and immoral groups and beliefs. Let me tell you what King would turn over in his grave. Was when civil rights began to continually endorse political figures that were pro-abortion. You know, when you think about it, civil rights and pro-abortion, those don't go together. You, you look at uh, civil rights today, the African-American battling for civil rights, equality, and then you look at the LGBTQ movement, 
We see this case in point with Black Lives Matter. Two trained Marxists on their website, in their statement as to Black Lives Matter, which came about after the death of George Floyd, where eight plus minutes his neck was held down by a law enforcement officer. But at the end of that, when you looked at their website, it had Marxism, it was pro-feminist, it never talked about dads, fathers, which is a major problem in the African-American community. It never talked about, it did not even mention a man, black man at all. They went back and pulled it and redesigned it, but the truth of the matter is, is that I wrote this down, if civil rights were a wagon, what began as a battle for equality has resulted in passengers to whom many the Bible would warn against that are living in contradiction to the scripture and the civil rights movement. A lot of times godly men, black men and women have aligned themselves, yoked themselves with organizations that have no credibility in the area of civil rights at all. It's to be unequally yoked. Marxism. Marxism is an underpinning of critical theory, critical race theory. I wrote this down. Marxism promises not equal opportunity, which is capitalism within a democratic republic, but it offers or it tries to offer equal outcome. Did you get it? Opportunity. You live in a, you live in a free market. You live in a capitalistic environment. You live in a country that is a, that is a, a democracy, but it's also a republic. You, you live in a nation that's unlike any other nation in the world. People float and, and try to figure out how to get here. If you've ever been to a third world country and you come back into Atlanta or one of these major airports or LaGuardia or wherever, and you walk in and you say, welcome home, and you're an American, you hold that passport you think to yourself, thank God, I'm home. Marxism, unlike that, a democratic republic, a capitalistic society that tells every man, woman, boy, and girl, you have an equal opportunity to become something. Through 25 years, I've told people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, I've said to young men and women, stay in school, stay in school. If you need help, we'll do whatever. We've gone into schools tutoring. We've gone, done four-week summer camps academically, coming alongside inner-city kids, trying to strengthen their math, their reading, and those basic skills. We've had people that we've said over and over again, Haley, who for years worked with Heinz Community College, is a, just a source of information to a young graduate out of high school. We've said, hey, listen, we'll help you get a GED. Why? Because we want you to have every opportunity because you live in a country of opportunity, equal opportunity, not equal outcome. What do you mean? Equal outcomes, Marxism. It's where the government takes all the money, gets a big chunk of it for themselves, and penance out the rest of it at poverty level to all the rest of the population. And socialist Marxism, which is a hallmark of critical theory, critical race theory, is a great threat to religious freedom. Do you know one of the largest, most, one of the largest missionary sending countries today in all of Europe? You want to guess? The Ukraine. You don't think we're in a spiritual war? You don't think this five foot six Putin Tate, Putin himself, five foot six little man syndrome, who's trying to reestablish the Soviet Union? You don't think that he's guided by a spiritual dark force that is basically trying to shut down the Ukrainian church? We're in a spiritual war. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, We Will Not Be Silent gives the example of Marxism. Listen to what he said about Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez is a socialist Marxist who was elected to the president of Venezuela in 1999. He told the masses, he told the public, that it was unfair that businesses were wealthy and that common people were poor. If he were elected, he would put people in charge that would run the state better than the capitalists thus allowing everyone to share in the profits. Oh, it sounds good. At the time Ch Chavez was elected, Venezuela was prospering. 
The country had a growing middle class, economic stability. This Marxist leader nationalized businesses by either buying them or taking them. This oil-rich country soon began to print money to try to counter inflation. Does that sound familiar? Inflation went, listen, to 2 million percent. And right now we're at a 40-year high, and some people are saying we're getting ready for hyperinflation. Chavez died of cancer in 2013. His daughter, his daughter in an impoverished, poor country is worth $4.2 billion. Margaret Thatcher made this statement about the deception of Marxism. She said the problem with socialism and Marxism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And boy, that's true. And you may say, well, you know, right now in this country there are problems. You better believe it. He talks about it. And let me tell you, he's a Democrat left libertarian. And yet that book is, if that book is true, and if I were a billionaire, if I were Bill Gates, I'd mount up an army of law, lawyers and I would go after him a defamation of character. And if Bill Gates does not, if Mark Zuckerman doesn't, if uh, the founder of uh, Amazon, if some of these billionaires don't go after him, then my friend, what he's saying is the truth. And if this book is true, then my friend, we are all in a whole lot of trouble. And you may say, Brother Jeff, what started you on this? Because the Bible said on the day of Pentecost, Peter said this, he said, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. One night I went to bed, way to the world, getting up every morning, three o'clock in the morning, so weighed, so heavy. Sheila waking up, I'd be sitting by the bed or kneeling by the bed. One night I went to sleep and I was, and I was standing in this bedroom and there was a four-poster bed with what looked like a wedding veil over those four posts. And I could tell something was going on up under it. And I was talking to whatever it was under, and I said, I know what you're doing under there, and I'm going to tell the world. And about that time, a demonic, looked like a dragon came out of that, came running toward me, and I put my foot up, and I hollered, I screamed, and I sat up in the bed, and I woke up, and Sheila was there next to me holding me. She said, are you all right? I dreamed again that I was in this room. And there was this demonic figure and he was working, doing something. And I couldn't, and I was trying to look over his shoulder and I woke up. We've got an enemy. And that enemy's working overtime. And yes, sometimes even our free market capitalism can become dysfunctional. And it becomes dysfunctional when, free, when capitalism and our free market is moved out, uh, out from under a democratic republic. And if what he's saying is true, in fact, let me, let me read to you because what he says is basically the pharmaceutical industry owns the world. This is a trillion dollar industry. It's not a billion dollar industry. I had an individual look at me and said, uh, well, to be honest with you, it's a ledge. Ledge is a lawyer. Ledge is executive director of an organization here, a nonprofit here. Ledge looked at me one day and he said, Dad, you know, a lot of people say he's a nut. He's a quack. I said, well, my friend, I can tell you this much, son. I've never seen a quack go into this much detail. I've never seen a quack put this much of a bibliography together at one chapter, let alone a book. Robert Kennedy in this book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health states, in July 2021, one year and four months into the misery of the global lockdown, the FAA, listen to this, had to divert air traffic over a section of the country stretching from the West Coast to Michigan to make room for the fleets of private jets converging on Sun Valley, Idaho for the 38th annual meeting of the world's Billionaires. They call it the Billionaire Summer Camp, including Bill Gates, Apple CEO Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerman, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, 
uh, Mike Bloomberg, Google founders, Larry Price, Sergey Brin, Brin uh, Warren Buffett, Netflix CEO, Reed Hastings, Disney Chair, Disney, ABC, Robert Iger, Viacom, CBS Chair, Sherry Redstone, Anderson Cooper, the bald out anchor for CNN. Their guest of honor was CIA Director William Joseph Burns. He wrote, these fat cats had helped to grease the skids for the collapse of America's exemplary constitutional democracy. The Bill of Rights were suspended. They obstructed the free flow of information, the open debate that had been oxygen in the sunlight of democracy. Their censorship allowed their allies in technology to basically shut us down. Closing churches across the country, shuttering down millions of business. Many of those businesses were African-American-owned businesses that it took generations to build. Shuttering down millions of businesses without the process of just compensation, suspending jury trials for corporate malfactors, passing regulations without constitutionally guaranteed transparency, public hearings, or comment, violating privacy through warrantless searches, track and trace surveillance, abolishing the rights of assembly and association. While, listen to this, while in a single year, they increased their collective wealth by 388 trillion dollars and destroyed the middle class in the process. Sometimes holiness is sacrificed on the altar of political ideology. I said the greatest threat in America right now is pulpits are not confronting nothing anymore. You go, by these, you go by these churches today and you see these lit up signs, uh, uh, a series on how to handle your finances or, or how to keep your head above water or uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. And you think about where this country is and where this world is. And as Alexis de Tocqueville said, or somebody said it, he said, America's good because she's great. If she ceases to be uh, good, she'll cease to be great. And she's good because her pulpits flame with righteousness. Putin at five foot six inches is pompous and arrogant and he wobbles his way across Europe much like Nazi Germany once did. And while we thought it was a peripheral thing and we didn't have to worry about Adolf Hitler, we got drug into one of the most horrible wars, World War II. Because somebody has a bone to pick and they're determined once I group myself as oppressed, once I carry that stigma of, of oppressed, then I become a victim. I'm not responsible for nothing. I'm not responsible for the choices I make. I'm simply called in a system, and poor old me, uh, that, I, that I have no choice over. My friend, that is a tool of the enemy of Satan. You and I are not judged based on oppressed or oppressor. We're not judged based on color. We're not based on anything other than whether we, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I know I'm out of time and I'm going to close. I believe for us in this room, we sit at a pivotal moment like we've never sat at before. And for most of you, I don't think you're prepared at all. Yesterday, I was sitting there trying somehow, and I've just had to quit. I'm out near about finished. But I was sitting there trying to figure out how to bring this sermon together, how to, how to put it in a way that would be pliable, in a way that would be understandable. And it's just been wrestling through this critical theory, critical race theory, the threat that it may be to our biblical worldview the growing Marxism and the, the, the feelings that we're getting today around the world. Our world is so unstable. At a certain point, I slammed my laptop down, stood up, and I started folding towels because Sheila was going to be home. And I, I started folding towels and, and I said, God, nobody cares. Nobody cares. 
And every parent in this room who has a child needs to understand that when your child, no matter the spiritual mooring that you put into their life, the reality is when they step onto an academic setting, a college campus, everything that you have poured into them can quickly be dismantled and disassembled. I was a pre-law major at Mississippi State. And the first time I came into, the, into a situation where people were laughing and joking and making fun of my faith and of the Bible was in a political science class where the professor and the class were laughing at the Bible and a story out of the Bible. And I thought in that moment, I've never experienced this before. And it was so unsettling to me. What's our responsibility? We don't need a worldview. We've got one. We've got a biblical worldview. Your Bible. It's your final authority. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus living in you. You're the temple of God's Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete. The counselor. The one who comes alongside of you to give you wisdom. In every decision. In everything that you hear. Everything that you see. You are walking out. I am walking out a biblical worldview. We're walking out our faith. And our children are watching. And we're teaching our children to do the same. I close with this, going back to Ernie, going back to his family. That church was wrong. That church was wrong about race. That church was wrong about ethnicity. That church was wrong about the Mexican people. That church was wrong about the Hispanic. What's so sad about it is they were legal immigrants and he was even, uh, he was in the military. He was in the United States Army. My responsibility was to listen to the indwelling Holy Spirit, to live out my biblical worldview. I knew that how they were being treated was wrong. I didn't need any other worldview. I didn't need anything to help me understand that. I knew that. I knew that in my heart. The question was this. Would I obey the indwelling Holy Spirit and do what God had called me to do? Even if it meant I would be ostracized, alienated, and even misunderstood or thrown out of the church. Back then, I stood up. I was probably about 200 pounds then. I, didn't look, I looked a lot different than I do now. And I was mad as heaven. And God took a man who was going to live out his worldview in the area of race relations and the mistreatment of ethnicity. And God took that and used that to turn an entire church. And that little Mexican family loved us so much. We don't need critical theory. We don't need critical race theory. We don't need the analytical tools of the academic community to tell us how to live out a biblical worldview. We know it. It's just a matter of whether we'll live it out or not. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you, and we praise you. Lord, we live in a nation right now that is so unstable, and there's so many unpredictables. Lord, it seems as if Washington is very weak. Seems as if we're vacillating and unsure. It seems like in the scene of the world. And I think back to that little couple there in Zimbabwe when I went back to visit. And that woman began to cry and her and her husband who owned a small business there, began, she began to cry and finally, she was talking about all the atrocities of living under this Marxist regime, under Robert Mugabe. She was talking about all the things that had gone wrong and how horrible it was. And I'll never forget these words. And she looked at me and she said, we thought American, we thought you Americans would come save us. And you didn't. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. We're not the policemen of the world, but we should be the Christian nation leaders who are driven by high moral and ethical standards and do not compromise in any sense of the word, whether it be government agencies, NIH that are compromising with the big pharmaceutical industries. We don't do that. We're not a part of gain of function in the Wuton lab and those kind of things. We're better people than this. 
And may we rise up to be a righteous and godly nation once again. May our pulpits flame with righteousness. Too many men today that are in the pulpits that are afraid. They're filled with fear. May you set them free. As Paul said to Timothy, God has not given you this spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We need strong pulpits today that will ring out with truth. Lord, we pray today, we we pray for ourselves. Lord, there may be a man or a woman, a boy or girl, somebody in this room right now that everything that's going on in the world and around the world is nothing in comparison to what's going on in their heart. There may be somebody that's watching by live stream or may watch later that right now there's, there's hell in the heart. There's a battle going on. The power of your Holy Spirit is pounding on that heart's door. The power of your Holy Spirit right now is crying out for repentance and brokenness and for someone to surrender their life to you. To wave the white flag. To say, Lord, I'm tired of fighting you and come into my heart. Forgive me. I did that in an office one day. Sheila, my sweet wife, did that in a college dorm room by her bed, an 18, a 19-year-old widow whose husband had been murdered dealing drugs. So God, I pray if there's a man or woman, boy or girl, that doesn't know you today, may they look at even me, Sheila, look at people like us and realize that God, you just accept us just like we are. Lord, for others in this room, they may not be walking with you. And pray right now that there be a recommitment, a rededication, a living out the Lordship of Christ. Lord, speak to us. Some need to come and pray just that they may do that. Feel the freedom to do that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. May never be a moment like this moment. You come. I'm here at the front.